We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker, sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Out called Cobra, a life of baseball and brotherhood. Dave Parker, thank you for coming on to KMOX. Thank you for having me. I'm enjoying myself. You have a lot of accomplishments in your playing careers, and, of course, your personal life as well is part of this memoir. I loved all the references to the Cardinals in your book. There's so many different St. Louis or Cardinals references, and one came to mind. Did you face Bob Gibson later in his career? Yeah, the latter part of his career. I think I got him one time. (laughs) I was told to hang loose in the box because I hit a home run off of it. Mm. He was quite a pitcher. I mean, you played against, I mean, so many great players, and even yourself have so many great accomplishments on the field. When you go back and remember your playing days, what do you look at as your biggest professional accomplishment? I like winning things that you can enjoy collectively. Mm. I think my World Series was the highlight of my career because that was something I could do with my teammates. Uh, and that's why this book is, is titled Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. When you talk about the enjoying that stuff with your teammates, I know you have all of those personal accomplishments, but what is that like to be part of a team, you're a star player, you win a World Series? How does that change you as a player? Well, it just gives you something that you can wear as a badge, mm-hmm. you know, Winning the World Series is, is something that you should be proud of and something that you, you should wear the ring every day. Mm-hmm. You have uh, two World Series to your name, if I'm correct. Is that right? Right. I got two and uh, was hoping to get another one before I retired. Yeah. So does one feel better than the other? Winning your first one, is that always better? Or when you do it again, is it just like the same feelings all over again? Well, winning that first one is uh, the key one because uh, the first one you never forget. Mm -hmm. What are some of your proudest personal accomplishments because you've done a lot off the field as well and you've did you know you continue to you know coach and do other things inside of baseball in different capacities and then even after that uh, professionally speaking you did a lot in your personal life and you know started charities and such 
I'm curious what you think maybe some of your proudest personal accomplishments are off the field. Probably establishing my foundation mm-hmm. that uh, I put together because of Parkinson. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do is raise money for research in Parkinson. And uh, we did a, a golf tournament in October when we did $48,000, one golf tournament. And uh, it's something that I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Cincinnati, and you mentioned in your book, uh, Cobra, that there's a lot of similarities between St. Louis and Cincinnati, the feel of the ballpark and the crowds and such. So when you played here, it felt kind of like, almost like a home game in some respects. If I remember, too, were you a batting coach back in 98 for the Cardinals? Right. Uh, When when Sosa and McGuire was in the middle of the home run race, Mm -hmm. I was... uh, Hidden instructor for McGuire. Wow. What a wild time in baseball to be right in the middle of that. What was that like to see all of the world watch baseball? Even people that normally wouldn't pay attention to the game were all of a sudden watching this one race, and you were right in the middle of it. What was that like? It was uh, a thrill. You know, I was trying to get McGuire to just follow Sosa's lead and just go have a good time. But Mac is so serious, I couldn't get him to loosen up. He probably would have hit 20 more home runs if he loosened up. <laughs> you know, but I was kind of trying to tell him that, you know, you got to enjoy this. Yeah. Make, make it fun. You know, I can't remember if you were part of that ESPN. They just did a 30 for 30 on that race maybe six months ago or so. Did you get a chance to watch that? No, I didn't. Yeah, it was interesting to learn some of the behind the scenes and the way that there was that friendship between the two players. Uh, for the good of baseball, they were very friendly and smiles, and you know they joke around with each other. I kind of like seeing that. It's it's something that you don't always see as part of the game anymore. Um, they actually had some fun. It, it made it look like they had a lot of fun, but then you see behind the scenes of just how serious McGuire was, how much of a, a mental toll that took on him. He needed a break towards the end and all of that. And it's a difficult thing, I guess, to a player, mentally speaking, when you're in that type of race or you're at that high of a level. It's got to be difficult as a player, and you probably would, of course, uh, relate to that. I would have um, thrived off of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, I I didn't mind being the hero because I was going to be the GOAT enough. So I would have welcomed it and got into it both feet. Mm -hmm. I think that as someone that grew up in Cincinnati, did you idolize Pete Rose? Did you like him? Uh, Pete, I was a Frank Robinson fan. Yeah. Beta Pencil. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, Pete had a style of baseball that you had to pay attention to because uh, he hustled every play, played the game the way it should have been played, and uh, I couldn't help him doing anything but liking Pete. Mm-hmm. And he's, of course, a name that is notorious in the sense that everyone knows Pete Rose and still a big part of uh, baseball history. Dave Parker was a pretty cool dude. 
He had, what, 2,700-plus hits in his career playing baseball in the 70s and 80s, two batting titles, seven All-Star games, three gold gloves, three Silver Slugger awards, an MVP award in 1978, two World Series wins. And he's also in the Reds Hall of Fame, was inducted about uh, seven years ago or so. And he's got a new memoir out called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. Let's not forget, too, he was a coach here, at least on the coaching staff, for the Cardinals back in 1988. That was a pretty big year for the Cardinals organization and baseball in general. We're going to talk more about his time playing, his time after, his charity work, and some of the things that he got into when it came to addiction. All in this interview coming up on Overnight America KMOX. Nearly a century of informing, entertaining, and serving St. Louis. KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America. His book is called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. It's a memoir from MLB legend Dave Parker. Known a lot for his time with the Reds, won a couple of World Series, MVP title in 78, and some great stories in between. We continue now with Dave Parker. From the book uh, in Cobra, did you tell a story about how Pete Rose wanted to recruit you early before you were even uh, graduating high school? No, I went to a, a workout uh, for the, the Reds, and it was at Old Crosley Field. And uh, I uh, and did some batting practice, some throwing, some running, and showing my wares. And uh, I did that, and I gathered my spikes and my bat, and I started walking away. And some guy was back behind me yelling, hey, hey. You know, come back. We want to sign you. I said, you can't sign me. I'm in the 10th grade. <laughs> so I, I've always been a big guy. Yeah. What a, what a dream, though. I mean, you're in the Reds Hall of Fame. You were inducted, I think, maybe six or seven years ago. That's That's got to be a cool thing, to grow up in a hometown and be loved by that hometown crowd. Yeah, it's a thrill. Yeah. I uh, do a lot of things with the Reds. I met every one of the inaugurations the that they have for the the players going into the hall, and everybody wear their red blazer. I mean, it's really something to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, take a lot of pride in being in the Reds Hall of Fame. You probably see that, too, when you were here, at least for that year with the St. Louis Cardinals. They do take a lot of pride in their alumni, and they're very active. The, the uh, home crowd is very much in love with the Cardinals in this hometown. And anywhere you go, you can't go more than two feet without finding someone wearing a Cardinals anything. Is it like that in Cincinnati for the Reds? Yeah, it's like that. I mean, um, <clears throat> two teams are very similar to each other. Um, big baseball towns, both both of the team. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're almost identical. Yeah. Uh, and city-wise, too, when we were talking about the different architecture of St. Louis, a lot of brick, because they were able to build off the clay and the land, and Cincinnati's like that, too. It's just the landscape, lots of brick. You get a feel, hardworking community. Right on a river, I guess you can look at some of the different similarities between the two cities. They have a lot in common. Uh, joining us here is Dave Parker in his new memoir, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. And did you write in the book that 
at a time, uh, maybe you didn't look at baseball as your future. You wanted to play uh, football for Ohio State? Yeah, that was my dream. Yeah. <clears throat> was to, to play football. And I tore my knee up my senior year in high school, and that <clears throat> changed all that. Mm-hmm. So I had to go my second sport, baseball. Mm. And uh, I couldn't have played 19 years of um, football. Mm-hmm. So it was a blessing in the sky. Yeah. Do you, you know, I lived in Ohio for a little bit. I worked, my very first radio job was in Lima, so just a couple hours north of Cincinnati there. And I got a taste for Ohio State and the fandom. I, I really don't know if there's a more rabid fan than an Ohio State Buckeye fan. <laughs> You like them to die. <laughs> they are, I mean, intense as fans. They are very much, not only do they love, but they are willing to fight for their team, literally, at any given time. They love their team so much. It's pretty remarkable. I don't know if I've seen that with any other um, any other team's fan base. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, you know, Lima was uh, a good program. They had a good football program. Mm-hmm. High school. Yeah. Well, that's a neat city. There's a lot of, um, I mean, they do take it very seriously in Ohio. High school football is so big in Ohio. Great programs. They, t- they put so much attention into it. It's not like that everywhere. When uh, Just when I moved to Ohio for the job, I realized that that's pretty unique. You can go anywhere else, and there's high school programs, but it's like comparable to Texas, how serious they take high school athletics in Ohio. Right. Te- Texas Bill Stadium. Yeah, <laughs> and have like three tier stadiums for high school football. Mm-hmm. You know, I th- I think I read that at a time. Were you the first player that had an average salary of a million dollars in baseball? Yeah, I was the, the first. Yeah, what did what was that like as a player? You're young, you sign, and you become one of the highest paid players of all time in the game because of that. That's a pretty big distinction. Did that change you at all? Did that? Did anything in your life change after that? Well, the way, way people looked at me, you know, they uh, could relate to me getting paid that kind of money mm-hmm. for playing baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a price paid for being the first, and I had to pay that price. Mm-hmm. So uh, things kind of went south. Hmm. Uh, with uh, the fan and my relationship. Huh. So when, it's a price to pay. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of interesting. Did I, do you think other players may have resented that? They they look at it maybe a little bit of jealousy factor? Yeah, I guess they did. But uh, I, I just wanted to be the best. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all I wanted. Yeah, and you were able to accomplish so much in your playing career, uh, and you, you did some pretty amazing things too. You even after the game continued to to continue to do things. What was it like to come to the decision it was time to retire and and look at a different part of your career? Because you know, as a player, as as someone that is a high profile player like yourself, I'm you encountered so many other players that were in that later stage in their life when you were young, and you probably looked at them and they were probably thinking about the same things you were thinking about by the time it was your time. Yeah, I, I gathered that pop role. I, I got they started calling me pop. I know I. 
reached my <laughs> my maximum. Yeah. <laughs> I had Gary Shetfield and I mentored. Yeah. He was like my baseball son, Eric Davis, Barry Larkin, Paul O'Neill. Mm-hmm. You know, so I had a chance to mentor all those guys, and I found pleasure in that. So it made my career coming to an end a little a little better. Yeah, it kind of extends your legacy in a way. In, it gives you more invested into the team, into the game, when you get to see the players that you're associated with go out and succeed on their own. In general, in your book, you do talk about some of the different mistakes you made in your career, and then you open up about pain management. And I know a lot of athletes struggle with this because when you're playing at such a high level and some of them get uh, you know, recommendations or whatever it may be to try to manage that pain, and it doesn't always end well, and I think you found that personally. So can we talk about what you wrote about in your book, Cobra, in, as part of the memoir? What, what happened when you started taking pain medication? Well, I was uh, dealing with that astroturf, and it's hard to stop and start. And uh, that would bother my knees and my lower back. Mm-hmm. So I, I played under some serious pain. On occasions, Andre Dawson was worse than me. He had knees that I felt sorry for him watching him walk across the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I uh, just suffered through it. Mm-hmm. And when you when you uh, suffer through it, of course, it takes a pretty major toll on your body. Um, eventually, it catches up to you. And do you think that maybe suffering through it? And facing it all at once after it got to a certain point contributed to the problems that you had later when it came to pain management? Yeah, it, it was a part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, played in situations where I had knees that had to be drained before and after the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it was something that I learned to deal with. I iced them prior to the game. I iced them after the game. So uh, those were some of the little tricks that I used to stay on the field. Yeah. You had the tricks. Dave Parker is our guest in his memoir called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. He opens up about a lot of aspects of his life. He writes candidly about some of the mistakes he made, drug problems when it came to pain management, also talking about his battle with Parkinson's, the good days, the bad days. And really, it's a lot about opening up about some of the mistakes he has made. And it brings it to the forefront to know that it's not the end after you make a mistake. And it's amazing the things he's been able to accomplish in his career. He's in the Reds Hall of Fame. And when you look at his stats, pretty remarkable in the things that he accomplished over his career. We're going to continue next with Dave Parker on Overnight America KMOX. Dave Parker, a lot of accomplishments to his names, a couple of World Series wins, seven Major League Baseball All-Star games, uh, among other things. And he wrote a memoir called Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. And it talks about some of the mistakes in his life and some of the things that were brought on to him, like Parkinson's. It's really an open look and a memoir into his life. We continue now with Dave Parker. Um, I'm guessing other players had tricks, too. They probably... Uh, gave you recommendations of things you can do or whatever. And it might be tough because you want to be able to compete on that highest level. And there's probably all of these other temptations around that make it 
because you know you being as a natural competitor, someone that is at the highest stage, revered for their abilities, that probably puts a lot of pressure for you to want to be able to keep at that level, and it probably pushed you to try things you wouldn't normally have tried. You want to know about the, the drug trial? Yeah. Well, they had a drug trial, and uh, it was a trial that lasted for a couple months, and I was involved in uh, that trial. It was people that was doing cocaine, uh, doctors, lawyers, front office members, everybody. It was a fad. Mm -hmm. It was around, and uh, I participated. Mm -hmm. But uh, I stand accountable for all that. Yeah. We, um, we, we go back and look at it, and you're right. You, you say that you talk about accountability for it, and do you feel like writing a memoir, telling your story, is just a part of that? To, you know, you went through it before, and you are someone that looks at it and says, I want to, you know, I, 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 I can't hide this. I don't want to make it something that's uh, hidden. It, is it hard for you to talk about it now, or is this, is this liberating in a way where you started to open up about it? No, I don't mind talking about it. Like I said, you know, I, I stand accountable for whatever I've done. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's people that it was being done by everybody in, in, in sports. Mm -hmm. uh, the medical profession was involved. I mean, entertainment. Yeah. You found that also uh, players, and it wasn't just baseball, it was across all sports, and sometimes... It could be someone not even testing positive finds them uh, punished for it or whatever it may be. And you're right, it was a part of that era. When you say everyone was doing it, what do you mean like, I mean, what percentage of other athletes would you say um, would have been like that, that may have partaken in that during that era? Well, you can't say athletes because everybody was doing it. I mentioned the medical profession, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> entertainment, sports. Everybody. Yeah. What about when you started to confront this and get past it? What what was necessary for you to get past that point in your life where you were taking drugs? I, I didn't, it didn't take no time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a, a thing that I did. I didn't do it. With regularity, it didn't affect my my obligation to the ball club because all my injuries were baseball related. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also talk about in your book Parkinson's, and part of it was what that means in your life. Um, and, and the interesting thing about finding connections with other ailments in your life is that you kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say it was a test drive to try to help you find ways to cope with it, things that are um, troubling in your life, but when you continue to battle Parkinson's today and you open up and talk about that, I mean, I think that there's so much more to your story and the battles that you continue to fight and the strength that it takes in order to fight this sort of thing. This, when, I, when I read a story like this in Cobra, 
I think this has probably given strength to other people too, because other sometimes people have things thrusted upon them that they can't control and they didn't ask for, but they battle on and they and they fight past it. And it's a it's a, a story where you can be triumphant. You could you could actually come out of this and continue on and not give up. And I find that that is the type of story that people need. Well, Parkinson is something that they don't know nothing about. I mean, if you find a cure for it, find me first, and we'll both get rich. Mm-hmm. You know, Parkinson is uh, something that nobody's figured out yet. It gives you uh, a different day every day. Mm-hmm. You come out one day, you, you can walk standing straight up. You come out another day, you can't walk unless you crouched over. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's something that is bad news. Yeah. Do you take? Med- yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I've heard that some of the different side effects is what causes that the the side effects of the medication, um, and how it, really how do you cope with it now? What what are the things that you do in your life that helps make it a little bit easier? Just wake up and deal with the day. Play the hand that's dealt. Mm-hmm. Wait to get around. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's. it's like that in so many different people's lives. You have to wake up and play the hand that's dealt. The Dave Parker 39 Foundation. Tell me a little bit about how that started. When I got the disease, mm-hmm. I um, went to um, find out what I could do for it. And I ran across organizations that were dealing with Parkinson, and I wanted to be a part of it. You know, I wanted to do fundraisers, try to find enough money to give the research, and might get lucky and find out what the cure is. You know, but right now, don't nobody know anything about Parkinson. Yeah, uh, that's the that's the thing. Do you feel at this point? You know, it's all out of your hands. You can't do anything. Or do you feel things like creating a fund? What you do? That's that's what you can do to help control it. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way to do it. You know, if people wanted to learn more about your foundation, or maybe look you up online, or your book, what are a good? Is there a good website, a place that you can send them? You can send it to Dave Parker Thirty Nine Foundation. Mm-hmm. Doing some great work. Yeah. It says dot com. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still based in Cincinnati? Is that where you guys live? Yeah. Yeah, you guys, uh, we had a little back and forth between the Cardinals and the Reds to start the season. But, man, those Reds are looking pretty good to start off after, you know, they, they lost the, the home opener. But after that, you guys whooped the Cardinals a little bit there. Yeah, the Cardinals and the Reds been having problems. <laughs> they always been fighting. Yeah. Yeah, there was a little bit about that. It's a passion. There's a passion between the two clubs. I can see it. But it makes for an exciting way to start the season, I guess. It gets the fan bases all riled up. Right. Do you get to make it out to any games? I, I might make about 8 to 12 games a year. Oh, that's great. Do you ever see any uh, Parker jerseys out there? All the time. That's great. <laughs> that must make you feel pretty good that you can walk around and look, and you know they might not see you there, but you see them. Yeah, because I only go when I'm sitting in a box. Yeah. I don't sit out amongst the fans. 
that gets a little hectic. Sure, I get that. Uh, Dave Parker in the Dave Parker 39 Foundation, which you can find online, and, of course, the new memoir that's out called Cobra. You can look out Dave Parker's book there. I really enjoyed this last uh, half hour. Thank you so much for spending time with us on KMOX. All right. My pleasure. He joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line. Real fascinating look. It's not easy to talk about a lot of these things, let alone write a book and open yourself up, be vulnerable that way. So I'm glad that he spent some time with us tonight, Dave Parker. This is Overnight America KMOX. Overnight America with Ryan Recker is sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. And welcome back to Overnight America. We're going to be live up until 2 o'clock because of that late Cardinal start. And we're going to have another one of those Cardinal starts on Tuesday, which means that we could have a couple of more recorded interviews uh, between now and then. But it gives us just a couple of live segments like this one. If you want to do a quick call in, we only have a few minutes. But I got a message from Wayne on Facebook who sent me a video of Dave Parker throwing out someone at the plate. That dude had an arm. Whoa. I don't know if I've seen a player throw a baseball like that. Amazing. If you gave the guy a Nerf football, he could probably throw it the length of, I'm going to guess, between St. Louis and St. Charles. He could probably throw it from the arch to St. Charles, the landing spot where they have the museum for the uh, uh, Lois and Clark, Lewis and Clark, excuse me. But I, I tell you that the whole idea of him having that monster arm in today, all the things that he's battling and battling through, it's a good book. It's a good idea. Maybe if you liked him and you didn't know that was out there, this gives you that opportunity to see it for yourself. All right, let's talk some coronavirus. There's just a few things I wanted to get to that are not as important, I believe, as the homicide and the violent crimes that continue in St. Louis because I feel like we have a pretty good idea of how we're going to battle and continue to battle with this vaccine. If there was only a vaccine for violence in St. Louis and we can try to eradicate that next, wouldn't that be nice? But uh, COVID has its toll. And one of the latest stories that came out talks about Europe in the great milestone. One million coronavirus deaths on Monday across Europe. Death toll across uh, Europe's 52 countries is one million. Now, keep in mind, Europe as the size of the, all of the countries combined. You can look at that and say, you know, population wise, not quite as a China, for example, or geographic size, not as a China. But then again, I don't think they're lying about their numbers either. The coronavirus has killed about 2.9 people, million, uh, 2.9 million people uh, worldwide, infected about 136 million across the world. And here in the United States, the numbers continue to grow, but uh, it, it's, it hasn't stopped. The odometer continues to roll. We find that if we were to do more science and analytics on the numbers, and if we were to get honest numbers where governors like Governor Cuomo isn't manipulating things, honest numbers of how this rolled out and what happened, I, I think we're going to have to really study this in the future. And it's going to give us a really good idea of how to fight things like this better in the future and be better prepared for it, if anything. KSDK did a story about Clayco. I didn't realize how many 
people are employed by Clayco locally here in the region. About 600 people, they say, employed in St. Louis. They expect their revenue this year to be $4.5 billion, billion with a B. It's pretty impressive. They're in the news because they said that they are going to mandate the vaccine and also a return to the office because they feel they're more productive when people are in the office. So they're moving to try to get things back by May 10th. That's a little under a month. It probably gives a lot of people time, put a little fire underneath them in order to go get that vaccine. I am uh, definitely going to get the vaccine. I just haven't scheduled anything yet. And I think I'd you know, sometimes it's a lot easier to try to get that little fire underneath you, the motivation. Uh, it's about time you got it. Time for you to schedule it, make that call or whatever it is. Try to find something that may be close. I just don't feel like going down to the dome. I'm going to have to look at some other options for me. But then again, at least my availability to not have to drive two and a half hours to get on the list is feeling a lot better now. This is where people are saying they feel more secure on the work job site. And if they're going into the office, if they are around people that are vaccinated. And I don't blame them. I mean, I, I understand that there is a, a certain consideration that people do want to get back to normal. But the problem that we run into is that whenever you say that word normal, they always try to put you down a notch, try to knock you down a step on the ladder. And they say that normal's never going to look normal ever again. What hurts about all of this is that they say, you're going to get the vaccine. You'll be, you'll be uh, finding that you'll have the immunity and even if you do get it, you're not going to find yourself deathly ill because the vaccine shows that even with it, it really minimizes your ability to have to go into the hospital in a grave condition. So it gives you a lot more protection to know that you're able to do things and not have to have that 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 worry that's always going to be right on your back. But then you hear people like Dr. Fauci and some of these other experts go on television and they say, well, you know, we really need to figure out what normal is. Is normal wearing masks all the time? Is normal wearing two masks? As they said at the start of the Biden administration, it's probably better you wear two masks. If they keep playing that game where people are finding that they can get the vaccine, it's effective on them and they are immune, but you're still telling them all these other things are going to happen. If you're a business owner, that should scare you because you're saying, come on back to the office. You have to get the vaccine, but we want you back. We want you working. We want to continue on. We want to find that normal. And then right off the bat, they tell you, oh, well, actually, you're vaccinated and you have all of these protections, but uh, you're going to have to do the same things as if you weren't in the office or maybe if you weren't vaccinated and we're just going to live on. And this is what the this is what the normal looks like. It, it hits people different ways. Some people are more inclined to just accept that. But I feel like there's a lot more people that are tired of this. And they were told that this is the answer. This is the end game. But they're not getting the benefit of the end game. I wanted to also talk about statistics that are out there. And I'm looking at the homicide analysis from the St. Louis Police Department. Their latest number is coming out on the 12th. So this is from as of yesterday. Now, keep in mind, it doesn't include all of the crimes from yesterday. It just has up to early yesterday. And the numbers reported from the St. Louis Police Department is at 54. The numbers continue to rise. Um, I don't want to predict that we could be a month ahead of where we were last year when we had a 50-year high for homicides in the city of St. Louis. But I think the end of May, we were at 70 homicides. Right now, we're 13 days into April, and we're already at 54. So if we have another 16 homicides between now and the end of the month, then we're 
basically uh, one month ahead of where we were before in a bad way. That's not good. You look at the different victims of these crimes and so many of them, you look at them and say, wow, minors, you know, under the age of 18, nine people have died. Five males, four females have been killed in the city of St. Louis. How many kids have you heard of that have been shot? And sometimes it's just them playing in their front yard and a stray bullet comes by. Or sometimes it's a gun that's not properly locked in a safe or left out or whatever it is, like that tragedy we saw just a couple of days ago where it was a five-year-old involved, the one that found the weapon and fired and pulled the trigger. The parents, of course, are responsible for that, but it's all a tragedy. If you look at the number of victims in it based on race, if you want to talk about the city of St. Louis, a wide majority of them are black. 38 victims are males and 11 are females, black. And if you want to just look at the 54 or so that have been logged by the St. Louis Police Department, only, let's see, one, two, three, four, only five of the 54 are of a different race. Three are white, one Hispanic, one Asian. And the rest are black. And it's hurting the communities. When we talk about having a new mayor that's going to be coming in and the priorities and the people are just waiting for some help in the north side of town, that's a real plea. And we're talking about a plea to save lives. If during the Cruson administration, did if let's say hypothetically the people that lived up there don't believe that Mayor Cruson did enough to help the people on the north side, then what is going to be changing to help the people of the north side with the new administration with Tashara Jones? Is it going to be we're going to get less police, less trust in the police, and we're going to get less people on the streets? Thus, we're going to have to find alternate ways to try to protect the north side. Does anyone actually believe that's going to help the numbers there? Does anyone actually believe that that's going to have a positive impact? That scares a lot of people, and as, as it should. I think all across St. Louis, people are going to be watching and waiting to see what the results are. And, I mean, I'll, I'll give her credit if, where credit is due. If things change on the north side and we see less violent homicides and people dying, then she'll get credit for that, and rightfully so. But if not, she'll be responsible for it because that's, the I think, the number one job that she would have in office. All right, coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk about your brain with someone that knows an awful lot about the brain, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor in an upcoming book called Whole Brain Living. We'll discuss that next on Overnight America KMOX. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs> 